Heavenly Father, it's in a spirit of adoration that we come before you now and ask that we hear from you in your word. For none of us that are doing this are here for our own name. Instead, Lord, we pray that your name be magnified above all other names. That in the preaching of your word, this would not be about me or anyone else in here. But strictly, this word would be used to bring the hearts of your people to you. Stir the affections of your saints toward you in worship. Lord, I pray that what be taught here and preached here be true and accurate and right. That it be worth our time and attention as we look at what you have done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. May we all sing praises to His name. May we all come here to worship His name. May we leave and go into a community that's dark around us to magnify His name. Because there's no other name under heaven by which we are saved. Do that in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verses thir- verse 13, and we're going to go through verse 17. Matthew 3, 13 to 17. Self-evaluation is, is a really difficult task to ask anybody to do. A former company that I used to work for uh, we used to evaluate our, our, our employees on a list of competencies every 90 days. So the employees would be given a list of competencies and they would be asked first to evaluate themselves. In this list of competencies, you would identify the things that you're really good at, the things that you're not so good at, and then those things that you're just mediocre at, sort of, sort of right down the middle. And as you can imagine, people usually had a very difficult time coming up with the things that they're weakest at. So the list of weaknesses was always just a little bit shorter than everything else. I mean, after all, this determines raises and various other things as well, right? So you want to put your best foot forward. So they have a very difficult time coming up with with weaknesses. And, And usually the ones in the weakness category were the things that nobody really minded being bad at, you know? Managing through systems. Who even knows what that is? I'll put that over there in the weakness category. I'm okay being a little bit bad at that. Well, one of the competencies on the, on the list was self-knowledge. Being able to evaluate yourself. And ironically, most people would put this in the category of strengths. But it's one of the, often the most miscategorized competencies was self-knowledge, as we would come to find out in discussing with them. Because inevitably, they would identify things in their strengths that nobody else saw. Nobody else could recognize these or affirm these in them. But they saw them as strengths. So it seemed that self-knowledge was pretty weak. Now, call me crazy, 
But I think we probably all struggle with this until we get married. You see, because you go into a marriage not really knowing what your true weaknesses are, your spouse tells you. And they're quick to be able to tell you. I think the person sitting next to you, if you're married, the person sitting next to you could probably tell you better than anyone else what you're weakest at. One year on Father's Day, Andrea got me a coffee mug that said, World's Okayest Dad. Now, now, I'm okay with it, really. Like, we all had a good laugh. I looked at it and I thought, that's, you know, that's apt. How many people around here have the world's best dad mug? And I'm, I'm going to tell you, it's just, it's probably not true, okay? I mean, of all the dads in the world, there probably is one that's the best. And just the odds that he's in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, of all places, in this congregation... It's just probably not you, okay? <laughs> so I'm, <laughs> I'm guessing it's, it's a lie, all right? So world's okay as dad. I'm okay with that. I mean, there's, there's lots of good dad out, great dads out there. I'm, I'm probably not that one, but there's lots of bad dads out there too. And okayest means I'm not them either, right? It's good to have my wife actually affirm that, that I'm right in the middle of the pack. And that's a pretty good place to be. The point is that it's, it's really important that we realize who we are. That from time to time we put up a mirror in front of ourselves and, and, and it tells us accurately who we are. In our, our text this morning, we're going to be witness to the baptism of Jesus. And, 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 and surely this is a scene that most of us are familiar with. It's loosely recorded in, in most all of the Gospels. John's a little bit different, but all uh, the other three are, are pretty much spot on this scene. We've read it time and time again. We're probably pretty familiar with it, and we might be tempted to just read past it and think, I've, I've heard this before. Let's move on to the next section. However, I think that this passage actually reveals quite a bit, not only about Jesus' own mission, I think it reveals a lot about you and me as well. Let's look at our text this morning. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, as usual, uh, as we go through this text, I want to point out just a few observations that uh, I think is, is necessary as we make our way through the text of Matthew three here that we've just read. And it's very clear, it seems pretty evident that Matthew has broken this uh, text down into a couple of different 
in a couple of different ways. There's first a really big scene where Jesus is baptized, and then there's another scene where Jesus walks out of the water and the heavens open and the Spirit descends like a dove. And then there's one introductory uh, sentence there in verse 13 that sort of introduces the scene as a whole. So as we go through, there's just three observations that we're going to make as, as Matthew has pointed out, has set up this scene for us. First, there's the setup in verse 13, and it becomes clear that righteousness is required. Righteousness is required. Look in verse 13. He says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now, it's obvious that there's a, a bit of contrast depicted here in this story from the one we read last week. So a first century Jewish audience that's reading the Gospel of Matthew is most likely going to read it through in one sitting. And if you and I were to read it through in one sitting, were to do that, remember there's not chapters and verses in the original writing. So if we were to read it through in one sitting, what we would see is this picks up right after John has finished talking in verse 12, just before it. And to whom is John talking in verse 12? He's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees that are standing there on the bank of the river. And if you'll think back to last week, you'll remember that they're standing on the bank because they have zero desire to get in the water and repent of their sins and be baptized by John. It says in verse 7 that they were coming to John's baptism. And a couple of verses prior to that, the people are actually being baptized by John in the river. And they're confessing their sins. So the Pharisees are, are just coming to the baptism where the other people are coming and actually getting in the water and confessing their sins. So John calls them out on the riverbank. He points to them and he calls them out on the riverbank. And his, his point is that these religious leaders have absolutely zero desire to repent of their sins if they recognize them at all. Instead, they're quite happy to just watch this scene take place and make sure that John isn't up to any nefarious activities. So we go immediately from the religious leaders refusing to get into the river and repent of their sins to someone who we've already met who was born of a virgin and is God with us getting in the water. You see the juxtaposition? See the, the parallel that's been drawn there for us in these two passages? Here's the religious leaders standing on the shore. Son of God, born of a virgin, king of the Jews, seed of Abraham, getting in the water. Apparently, the religious leaders think that they're exempt from God's calling to be baptized. Now, this would have been somewhere near a 70-mile journey for Jesus. Something roughly equivalent to a three-day walk for Jesus to get out there to John. So there's virtually zero chance that Jesus just stumbles upon this scene and goes, huh, well, everybody else is getting in the water. I might as well get in the water. After all, it's hot, right? There's zero chance that Jesus is doing this. Jesus makes his journey out to where Jesus is to be baptized. That's what he is out in the middle of nowhere for. 
the purpose of being baptized. Now, why? Why is he out there being baptized? Well, he's going to tell us in a moment some details about why he's being baptized. But suffice it to say that God is requiring his people at this moment to be washed in the water. Now, remember we discussed last week that baptism isn't a thing for the Jewish community. Now, they would be familiar with a person coming over, converting from Gentiles to Jews and and being ceremonially cleansed, being washed as a Gentile, washing the the Gentileness off of him, if you will. They would be loosely familiar with that. But baptizing all of the Jews in a river, never. They, They would never think of that. Now, the reason baptism is required for Jewish people at this moment is because they're an unrighteous lot. They're unrighteous. And John is coming in, preaching repentance, urging them to confess their sins and be baptized as a sign or a symbol of their cleansing and their desire to follow God in obedience from here on out. So it makes the simple point by John baptizing in the river and Jesus getting in the river that God is requiring righteousness. Righteousness is required. Now there was obviously a day where the Lord remained silent for the 400 years before John even comes on the scene. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't care about sin. It means that he hasn't sent them a prophet to point them along the way and to point out their sin until John comes on the scene. But the day is no longer. God is speaking up loud and clear. And He's letting His people know that righteousness is a requirement. And if you want to be ready for His kingdom, then you need to repent of your sins and be baptized. The second aspect of this passage I want you to see is that Jesus must walk in righteousness for us. Jesus must walk in righteousness for us. Look at verses 14 and 15. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Now there's always a lot of debate around this scene here. Why does Jesus feel the need to get baptized? Why does Jesus get into the water? And it's clear that even John the Baptist has this question. When Jesus gets into the water, he he has that question. Remember, John's calling people to get into the water to be baptized as an outward sign of repentance of sin. And, and, And the Jewish people are getting into the water, they're confessing their sins, and they're being baptized. And John has just talked a bunch of trash to the Pharisees and the Sadducees that are standing on the shore. And he's saying, man, you think I'm bad. The one that's coming after me, he's going to cut you down. His winnowing fork is in his hand. I'm not even worried, worthy to, to carry his sandals. And then here he comes and he gets in the water. Now, there's obviously some significant issues with that in John's mind. I mean, first, what does Jesus have to confess? Why, why is he? He doesn't have anything to confess. Why, what does he have to confess? Second, why would somebody who's greater who John has just said is greater, would submit to someone who is lesser. And last, John has just finished saying that Jesus is coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Which we talked about last week is is an example of or an image of purification. 
Just like fire would burn a precious metal, would burn out the, the weaknesses and the, the, the dross in the, in the precious metal and would make it stronger in the end, so the Lord Jesus is going to come in and give to His people the Holy Spirit and fire that would serve as a purification method for them, that would gradually grow them in righteousness. So this is a superior baptism to John's baptism of repentance. John even says that. I baptize you with water. But one who is coming after me. Meaning he is greater. His baptism is greater. So there are problems with what Jesus is doing in John's mind. And he's trying to prevent him saying, why do you, I, you need to be baptized by me. I need to be baptized by you. I'm the one that needs to repent. You're greater than me. I'm the one that needs the Holy Spirit and fire. I want your baptism. You don't need my baptism. I want yours. Now, we can easily say why Jesus is not being baptized here, right? We, we can easily say the reasons that are not true of his, of his baptism. One, he, he's not confessing any sins when he gets into the water. The Bible is abundantly clear on this. He's sinless. And so when he gets in the water, he's not confessing sin. Nowhere in the Gospels is it recorded that he confesses sins. In fact, that's not even Jesus' response to John. What is his response? He says, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. See, John the Baptist is an appointed prophet. He's sent by God to baptize the Jewish people. To prepare the way of the Lord. So John baptizing the people in the Jordan is a God-appointed ordinance. You must do this. Now, what Jesus is doing in the water is not repenting. It's simply doing what God has told him to do. It's very simple obedience. He's getting in the waters of baptism and he's doing what God is requiring of the Jewish people. God has required this of everybody, and he's getting in following suit. Now, he's not just requiring them to repent. He's also requiring them to be baptized. So Jesus, though he doesn't have any sins to repent of, he is still following through with God's will in being baptized. As a Jew. As a man. But it speaks to a much bigger issue of what Jesus is actually doing on the earth. What is he doing here? Most children, when they grow up in the church, especially if they grow up in the church, if you were to ask them, why did Jesus come? Most children are going to be able to tell you, particularly if they've heard the story enough, Jesus came to die for my sins. I think that's true of even my own children. They can tell you, Jesus came to die for my sins. And while that's true, it's only half of the story. If Jesus came only to die for sins, he didn't need to be born of a virgin. He didn't even need to be baptized. Many things that he did in his life he didn't need to do if he was here to just suffer punishment. I suppose he could have just descended from the clouds climbed up on the cross and suffered at the hands of God and at the hands of men. If all he needed to do was be punished for me, God could have done that in a number of ways. 
But, but Jesus actually needed to live a righteous life. He actually needed to live a righteous life as a man. So many times we focus on the punishment for our sin that Christ received on the cross. That we forget that in Christ we actually receive something as well. We receive rewards as if we had lived righteously. As the late R.C. Sproul once said, if Jesus had only paid for our sins, he would have succeeded only in taking us back to square one. We would no longer be guilty, but we still would have absolutely no positive righteousness to bring before God. So our Redeemer not only needed to die, he had to live a life of perfect obedience. There is a righteous life of obedience that God requires of us that we could not live. Christ had to live it on our behalf. And so here he is in the waters of baptism telling John that it is necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. It's necessary because God is requiring it. And if, if we, me and you, John, want to fulfill all righteousness, in other words, if we want to do what God says, then you are going to have to baptize me. So John is a part of this too. Notice that it says there, it is necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. He and John are doing what God is requiring of the Jewish people right then and there. Now this is tremendously important for us to understand. What justifies me before God is not my own obedience. It is Christ's obedience. The basis for my standing before God in righteousness as a son of God is 100% on the work of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I think, sums it up like this. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross... God takes our sin and imputes it to Christ. But he also takes Christ's righteousness and imputes it to us. The reason that this is so important is not only because it's the heart of the gospel message. In fact, if you were going to sum up the gospel message in one verse, I think 2 Corinthians 5.21 would be a good candidate for that, for that verse. But this is, this is important not only because it's the heart of the gospel message, but because it also, in this, this message, this gospel message, it totally undoes our natural bent towards self-righteousness. Self-righteousness looks to my own goodness as the basis for salvation rather than looking to Christ's righteousness. It's, my, it's about me. It's about my own goodness. And every single one of us in this room has a natural bent, natural proclivity, a natural leaning towards self-righteousness. And some of us may lean on it, some of us may flock to it altogether and run to it with all our might. But all of us are going to struggle with it. And many times this comes out when we attempt to justify our sins. And not own up to the sins that we've committed. 
Remember Adam when he sins in the garden? He and Eve make a covering of fig leaves. And God comes into the garden and they tell him, you know, we hid because we're, we're naked. And he says to them, who told you you were naked? And do you remember Adam's response? Not one of his better moments. Just going to say that. It doesn't appear a whole lot in the Bible, but it's not one of his better moments. He says, well, the woman who you gave me, she deceived me. And I, <clears throat> I don't know if he really mumbled, I ate, but I just, I read it that way every time for some reason. Adam is passing the buck. And essentially what he's saying is, I'm not sure who's more at fault here, Lord. I don't, I'm not sure if it's the woman or if it's you. Uh, y'all can deal with that later, but I know for sure it's not me. I mean, how do you expect me to obey when she's tricking me? You tied me to a huckster. She's a used car salesman. You tied me to her. I'm, I'm teasing, of course. We all know used car salesmen didn't come around until after the fall. That's for sure. Uh, but he's passing the buck. He's shifting it on. Don't look at me. I'm okay here. It's Eve that's the problem. Or maybe it's you. Maybe you're the one we can't trust. Essentially, we're saying that there is a standard of righteousness, and it's here. I'm the one that created that standard. I know where the bar is. And this is what it takes for me to actually be guilty of sin. I have to fall short of the bar that I made for me to actually be guilty of sin. And guess who makes it every time over the bar? Guess who clears the bar every single time? Me. I'm going to make it. Because when I look at my own sin, it's really just not that bad. Everyone else is always the problem. I am never the problem because I never fall short of my own standard of righteousness. Sometimes I may have to move the goalposts, but I'm always going to make it. It also comes out when we compare ourselves to others. You know, all in all, I'd say I'm pretty good. I, I, I try to be good. I go to church. I try to read my Bible. I pray from time to time. I'm not nearly as bad as that guy. Have you seen that guy? Have you seen what he does? I'm not nearly as bad as him. I was sharing the gospel with a guy in a park one time. He's probably in his late 20s or early 30s. And in the conversation, in the middle of talking back and forth, I asked him, let's suppose there is a heaven. How does one get there? How does one pass the judgment seat of God? He says, well, <clears throat> I guess God would just take all of your good deeds, stack them up, and he'd put them on a scale, and then he would stack all of your bad deeds, and he would put them on a scale, and whichever one is heavier would determine your fate. This is kind of a common response. I think you'll, you'll hear this from time to time from people. This is the standard justice. Seems, seems pretty fair. And so I asked him, by that standard, do you think you'd get in? And he said, yeah, I think so. Of course. Of course you would. You asked people the other way around. You asked people, if there's a hell, who do you think would be, would be worthy of hell? Who do you think would, would get into hell? 
You ever seen anybody or met anybody or maybe heard of anybody that you think would be worthy of hell? Most common responses is Hitler. That's probably the number one response. Hitler, well, everybody's in agreement that Hitler was as bad as they come. And so I think we're all in agreement that that, 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 would, be, that, that would be true. But many times this becomes the rubric of our own system of justice. Here's hell on this side, and there's an eternity of punishment that goes with it. And here's heaven on this side, eternal felicity or eternal joy or eternal bliss. And, and you, you look at those and you go, well, boy, how bad do you have to be to deserve eternal punishment? Well, when I look at Hitler, well, he surely deserves it. Well, I'm nowhere near as bad as Hitler. And it may not even have to be Hitler. It may just be the guy down the street that you see as a reprobate. And you may say, well, if, if he's deserving of hell, if he deserves an eternity of punishment, then, then man, I'm not nearly as bad as him. So I must naturally deserve an eternity in heaven. Surely that's God's standard of judgment. See, we all struggle with proper self-evaluation. The problem is we're not comparing ourselves to the right person. We compare ourselves to others, or we line ourselves up against our own measuring stick, and somehow we always make it, even if everyone else falls short. But the question isn't, what did I do to deserve hell? The question is, what did you do to deserve heaven? Jesus tells us right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5.48, you therefore must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Don't compare yourself to other fallen sinners that are equally deserving of an eternity in hell. All of us have offended an infinitely holy God, and therefore we are all deserving of the infinitely eternal, severe punishment in hell. Compare yourself then to Jesus and ask, am I as good as him? answer is no. A resounding no from every single person inside and outside of this room. The answer is no. You and I need to come to grips with a proper self-evaluation. Every single one of us are condemned sinners. God knows this. That's why he's sending his son. He knows this. And he's sending his son to resolve it. Isaiah tells about the Messiah to come. And he says, it was the desire of the Lord to crush him. Think about that for a moment. This is how severe our sin is. That to resolve it, God desired to crush his own son. Jesus is on the same page as the Father. He has to be righteous for us so that we might be saved. Righteousness is a requirement and Jesus has to walk in that righteousness for us. The last thing I want you to see here is in verse 16 and 17. 
And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now the significance in this, these two verses of this scene cannot be overstated. We have a promise from John in the previous passage where he tells us that, and the people watching, that one is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And Jesus gets out of the water and we see the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove and the voice from the heavens confirming to those that are watching what Matthew has been telling us from the very beginning, that this person is the beloved Son of God that has come to rescue us from our sins. This is Him. And lo and behold, the Spirit that He's coming to give is visibly manifested upon him. In the book of Acts, we will see where people uh, are gathered together and the Holy Spirit descends on them in a visible manifestation as well. These are the people that are charged to deliver God's message of proclamation of good news to the world. They are gathered together and the Spirit descends on them as tongues of fire. So you might say that this is Jesus' own Pentecost here. But this scene is also reminiscent of God calling a prophet in the Old Testament. You may remember Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel is standing also by the bank of a river. And the heavens also open up to him and communicate to him. And then in chapter 2, what comes into him but the Spirit of God commissioning him to speak to the children of Israel as a prophet. And so here we see Jesus, on whom the Spirit rests, commanded and commissioned to speak on behalf of God and His kingdom to the children of Israel and indeed to the entire world. Perhaps, perhaps the most important aspect of this is this scene confirms Jesus as God's messenger. Now God's messenger is someone that appears in the book of Isaiah several times. In fact, the whole book of Isaiah is really geared towards this messenger of God as the promised hope for Israel. He's the servant of God that's going to suffer on behalf of God's people. And Isaiah tells us specifically that the Spirit of the Lord will be on him. He says in, in Isaiah 11.2, you can write that down, Isaiah 11.2, he says, The Spirit of the Lord will, shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and, of, and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then he tells us in Isaiah chapter 42, Behold, my servant... Whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Matthew will later cite this same passage about Jesus in the book of Matthew. Isaiah then tells us in chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, me being the servant that God is, is sending his messenger. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus will later cite this as comfort to John the Baptist for his own ministry that he's doing. The Holy Spirit descending on Jesus in the book of Matthew is not simply this awe-inspiring picture that we can hang up on our wall. That's not merely the picture that's being painted for us there. 
It's a message to all those ensnared by sin and darkness that good news has dawned. It has come to you. That God's righteousness is being restored. Isaiah's messenger that we heard about is coming, is here now in Jesus. Those that have been let down in the past whether Moses by Moses or Joshua or David or Josiah, a new king has come. Even though you've been uh, let down by kings that have failed in the past, he will succeed. Even those leaders in the past that have fallen prey to sin, he will remain pure. The God-man Jesus will accomplish what those in the past never could. He will do what all other men were incapable of doing. He will accomplish what people in the past never could. He will bring salvation to his people. The dove descending on Jesus is a river of hope in the middle of a dry and weary desert. Remember the people who have been without a prophet for 400 years until John. And now, not only do they get John the Baptist, the messenger through whom the Messiah would eventually come, the one preparing the way for the Lord, but they also get the messenger who God promised in the book of Isaiah, who would save them from their sins. Jesus is about to be driven out in the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. He's about to go in the wilderness and for the purpose of basically enduring hunger and enduring temptation. And here we get a very clear message that sets our expectations as we read chapter 4 next week. That, that Jesus isn't undergoing this because of the Lord's discipline. That he's not unhappy with Jesus and punishing Jesus. And so as a means to punish him or to discipline him, he sends him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days and they go without food. That's not why he's there. Jesus is going out into the wilderness to endure temptation for completely different reasons, but let the record show that God the Father is well pleased with the Son. Jesus' baptism demonstrates that he is obedient to the Father all the way to the end and is evident... It's evident in his life that he is governed by the very Spirit of God. Satan is going to tempt Jesus. And do you remember what he's going to say to him at the very beginning? If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. We've just had it confirmed to us that he is the Son of God. Now Satan brings it in as an attack. His first attack on the messenger that God is bringing in. Are you really able to speak on behalf of the kingdom of God? If you are the Son of God. If really you are the Son of God. Prove to me your relationship with the Father. You know who else calls this into question? The crowds when they crucified Jesus. If you really are the Son of God, come down off that cross. Here we have the voice of God the Father. Without equivocation. In the clearest way you possibly can. Opening up the clouds of heaven. And saying in front of everybody, this is my beloved Son. I am well pleased with Him. 
Righteousness is a requirement. Jesus must fulfill righteousness for us. And by the way, he is successful. God tells everybody, I am pleased. Self-evaluation is difficult. It's challenging to look in a mirror and really determine accurately what sorts of sins are in our life. Self-evaluation is never easy in the corporate world or in spiritual life. It's never easy to look in a mirror and say, who am I really? Coming to Christ means recognizing our own unrighteousness and clinging to the righteous one. That's essentially what we're looking at here. And there may even be people in this room who have never actually come to Christ. And what we say, what we mean when we say that, is that you're looking at your own life in a mirror and you're saying, look, when it comes to the righteousness of God, I fall short every time. I can clear my own bar. I can move my own goalpost. But it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't actually gain me anything. When I look at the standard of God, and when it says in Scripture, I must be perfect, therefore, as the Lord is perfect, I look at my own righteousness and its filthy rags. And I believe that Christ is righteous. And I believe that He died on my behalf. And I believe that His sacrifice, His life of righteousness, His sacrifice for my sins, His resurrection and His ascension to the right hand of the Father is enough for me. It's enough to secure my justification before God. That's what it means. For those of us already in Christ. It means that every day we have to come to the mirror and allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to give us a report. To evaluate ourselves. To confront the darkness in our own heart. Sometimes those are sins that no one else knows about. Things that we think, things that we feel, things that we meditate on, things that we love that no one else knows about. And sometimes those are darknesses that make their way out into our relationships with other people. In each case, those things, as people that are evaluating themselves by the Word of God and by the standard of righteousness that He has set there, we're looking at that standard and going, I fall short in all of these areas. So for us, that means that we have to immediately get on our knees, confess our sins, and repent of those things. In a moment, Luke and the praise team are going to come sing, lead us in, in song. And when they do, I think it's a good time for self-evaluation. And what we're going to do, it's, an, it's a new song. We've never sung it in here before. But what we're going to do for the first few verses is we're just going to remain seated. And we're going to think about the things that the Lord is revealing to us in our heart. Where are those areas of darkness? And where I see pleasures and joys and things that are not pleasing to the Lord that no one else knows about, I'm going to own up to those and I'm going to confess those before the Lord. 
as my own unrighteousness. Where those sins have made their way out into my relationships with others, I'm going to make those relationships right. Now, for us to sit in here and not do that is to make a mockery of the righteousness of Christ. Is basically to say that it really didn't matter. His life of righteousness that he led, that really doesn't matter because when it comes to my own standard of righteousness, I make it. I can sweep all of this stuff that I've done under the rug and just call it good. It's good enough. And walk out thinking, I've really done something here. But that's not what the Lord is calling us to. The Lord is calling us to be people that are truly self-reflective. That can look at the Word of God and say, I am not righteous in these ways. And so when we turn to our brothers and sisters and we own up to the unrighteousness in our own hearts or in our own actions, what we're saying is, Christ's righteousness is what I need. The gospel really is true. I really am an unrighteous person and I desire more than anything else to have Christ's righteousness in my stead. I can't make it on my own. So as Luke leads us in this song, the first lines of the song are, yeah, you can go ahead and come up here. The first line of the song is, I cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. So as we sit and reflect on that, let's also evaluate the sin in our own heart and confess that to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We confess that we are unrighteous. Lord, your word reveals to us how unrighteous we are. And so, Lord, we pray that as we think about the words of this song, as we hear those words reminding us of Calvary, where you bled and died for us, May it also cause us to see the dark corners of our heart where we are in desperate need of repentance. Father, bring to mind the people that we've offended, the people that are hurting because of our poor testimony of you. Give us the courage that it takes to go to them and ask for their forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.